And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We are live from the bunker deep beneath world headquarters. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com, where I am working on a review of the movie we're going to be talking about here today. So stand by for that. In the meantime, you can find us over on all the different socials. The live chat is active. We are broadcasting live to YouTube, Facebook, and Odyssey. If you are not with us live, you can still leave a comment. And of course, the feedback line is always open by email, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. Want to give a shout out to everybody who listens to this show on podcast player platforms, wherever you find your podcasts. We've got listeners in Germany, France, Romania, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all over the world. Glad to have you all with us. And, of course, there's a newsletter you can sign up for over at the .com. There's a link in all of our show notes that you can sign up for that, too. So, so there we are. I mentioned the movie. We are. I, I am going to put a uh, put a review together. It is called Madeline's, and it is an interesting twist on the time travel trope. Joining me to talk about it, the co-writer and director Jason Miller and the producer Ed Doherty. Uh, I hope I got that right. Welcome, gentlemen. Yep. Good to have you here. Thanks for having us. So, uh, which one of you would like to give us the Reader's Digest non-spoiler edition description of the movie? Because I don't want to spoil anything that can't be spoiled. Uh, I will do that. Um, So, Madeline's is about a husband and wife, uh, Owen and Madeline, who have invented time travel. And um, they're in the early stages, so they're testing things. And Madeline is very hesitant to test it on animals she's an animal lover so she wants she decides to test it on herself instead um but there's a mistake and it results in a lot of different versions arriving to our time um and craziness ensues and they have to save the universe before it collapses in on itself well, and I have to say, their uh, their solution for saving the universe before it collapses in on itself is rather unique in terms of what we've seen in time travel movies before, because of the nature of the problem. And and I've have seen some different people speculating that this might be uh, satire, or it's kind of horror, but kind of not, and it's a time travel movie, but the time travel is kind of a mechanism for telling the other parts of the story. So how would you describe, if this film had to be pigeonholed, and I know I know creators hate to do that, is this a time travel movie? Is it a horror movie? Is it a satire? What was the intent in the story? It is all of those things, but um, it's, in my mind, it's just sci-fi. So... Yeah, that's how I would describe it. That's I think the 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 most uh, prevalent genre that's breaking through here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is like a bit of a satire on all those you know time travel tropes. Um, and I wanted to kind of turn them on their head because people have an idea of what time travel is, and I just wanted to change it like every step of the way. Right. Well, and Ed, when you got got involved in this, how how did how did you get connected to the project? Or you were you on board as a producer early, or did you come on board after the script's done? We've got the money, and and now you've got to you've got to piece it all together. Uh, I think it was after the script was done, right, Jason? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, basically, Bria Grant and I uh, wrote the script after we had been in development with another script for a long time and we were just like, we need to write something ourselves and uh, make something on our own because we were in development hell for so long. So um, I kind of dusted off this old short uh, script that I had for a short film 
and uh, kind of pitched it to Bria that we should do this in a more lighthearted way. And um, uh, so we wrote it really quick. And then the first person we sent to was Ed. So Ed, you were on at the very beginning. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I had worked on a movie with Bria before this um, that never ended up happening. That was kind of a, it's like a hilarious disaster I always forget about, but I'm not sure how much detail I should get into here. <laughs> Well, it's just between you, me, and the fence post. Now, Bria Grant, for those of you who are not familiar, Bria Grant, uh, I know her from her work on NBC's Heroes. She was the speedster, and she's done a number of things since. How did you all get connected? Jason, how did you know Bria to start with, and, and, and was this something that you had all talked about one of these days, maybe we'll put something together. I mean, you had this this short film, but there's already a relationship established there. How do you, how did you two come to meet? Um, I met her through, you know, just my um, friends that were were in the horror community because I produced the um, the Hatchet movies, which are all horror comedy movies, and um, I don't remember exactly how I met her, but we were we've been friends for a really long time, and um, I actually had her. I asked her if she would be in this other short film that I was making for a film festival. And we shot it all in one night and she was kind of impressed that we were able to pull it off really quick like that. So she said that we should work together on something. And um, we that's where we went into development on this other script. Um, so yeah, so I've been writing with her for a few years and we've been friends for you know a long time. The the idea of doing a really quick turnaround production when i'm i'm watching i watched the film last night and i'm looking at the production value of this and it's very impressive it's it it looks more expensive than i'm sure it actually is which is a sign that you've got people in place that that really know what they're doing the cinematography on this is is pretty good too and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, I can, four people in the cast, and I look at this, you know, the list of the crew at the end, and it's a very small crew. It's not 6,000 people. It's maybe, what, 12, 15, 20 people. I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is an indie flick in the tradition of the indie flicks. This is, this is a relatively low budget. You know, you're in four locations. You've got four actors. Uh, and, and I expect a lot of the a lot of the budget is probably eaten up in the visual effects more than anything else. But it's a pretty impressive display of guerrilla filmmaking. I, I was I was pretty impressed with it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a small crew. It was a small uh, you know indie movie. And like I said, it was you know on the tails of us developing this bigger thing. And we were just frustrated. So we, we needed to make something right. basically is what Bria and I came up with. And, um, and we just said, let's just shoot it as, you know, indie as we can. That way we control everything. And um, I personally, I've worked with bigger crews before uh, on the hatchet movies on frozen. Um, I enjoy a small tight crew right. because uh, you know what everyone's doing. you, know who your stars are like everyone kind of comes together and like uh feels like they're part of the the process and not like just a cog in the machine ed what kind of logistical challenges did you guys face putting this together because you know like i said you you're only you're only on four locations so i imagine getting permission and permits unless everybody knows somebody that has a space that we can use you know that kind of thing but were there were there challenges to the details, the nitpicky pieces of this, the, those those logistical aspects that people don't generally think about? Well, it's funny that locations. Uh, I'm sitting in one right now. I'm, <laughs> we shot in my apartment. We shot at Bria's house and uh, my old office. Um, logistically, I feel like Jason struggled with that the most because he did the visual effects. So every time we would do a shot, he would have to like walk around and be like, okay, there will be a Madeline's here. There'll be a Madeline's there. And we didn't even have enough people to be body doubles to fill in for the Madeline's. Mm. So it became kind of a confusing uh, situation. Um, logistically on this, I think it was mostly pretty simple because the locations were all our places. And um, a weird thing that I, I, I don't know why I'm even mentioning this, but 
the fake weapons that we used were like weirdly expensive where you go get like a rubber knife and they're like, okay, if you lose it, it's like $800. I'm like, how could this be that much money? Um, So I was constantly going to this prop house and getting these very uh, overpriced fake weapons for us to kill Bria with. Yeah. Now you mentioned the body doubles. The, there are a couple of shots, especially that, that come to mind where we have uh, four or five, half a dozen to to eight or nine different Madelines in the same shot, and for for me, you know, looking at that and thinking, oh, the visual effects aspects of this, the split screens, I was like, okay, are they shooting? Okay, that's the double where you know Bria's here, the double's there. Now this one's Bria over here, and that one's Bria over there, and and drawing those masking lines. I, I would have to assume was was one of those oh I just want it to be done moments right um well the good news is I own my own VFX company so uh that helped a lot in the fact that I do yeah, this all the time a crucial so, element of yeah, this yeah that helped a ton um but on set I would say yeah it was more frustrating on set than in post uh 100% because we had to time everything right and uh one of the things that I don't recommend ever doing is shooting without a script supervisor um, because, oh. oh, yeah, they would be a key person to help you uh, time everything out. And um, we did not have that person. Oh. So um, it was kind of Ed did a lot of that. Uh, he helped time things out. And also Ed was one of the Madelines a few times. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, on those big scenes, we would have um, Bria would uh, do all the dialogue, obviously. And then we had one double, uh, Sydney Steinberg, who is uh, pretty close to a body match for uh, Bria, and her hair was the same color. So a lot of times, if it's on her back, we just kept her in, didn't replace her. Yeah. Um, but in those big shots, I basically put a C stand all around, and uh, you know, Bria and I figured out the eye line for everything. It was it was a bit of a complicated mess, but. We, uh, which is why there's only a few scenes that have all those Madelines in it. Right. Um, uh, but I think it worked out. I think, uh, yeah, I think it all came together. So I'm pretty happy with it in the end. Yeah. Now, uh, Sci-Fi Sav is in the chat. It says, seems like a good concept, but time travel doesn't work this way. And basically the, the conceit in this is with the duplication, it's caused by a bug uh, in, in the software code. And you have multiple. I guess it's a. It, it basically is a causality loop, if if that's one way to describe it. When you guys were coming up with this, and I'm and I'm guessing that this was part of the original short film idea. What made you think about the duplication aspect of this? Because it's it's not something that you normally think about with time travel, unless you go into something like Back to the Future, for example, when he goes back ten minutes before he left. And now there are two of them, but it's because it's because he looped back to a different place, and now we've got now we've got that kind of a loop. But for one jump to end up looping and creating duplicates of the time traveler, that's kind of a unique, interesting way to do that. Where where did that idea come from? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, <laughs> basically, yeah, I I you know. Back to the Future is obviously one of my favorite movies. It's a masterpiece. I love it. Um, and I love all time travel movies. So I kind of wanted to take everything I knew and kind of just, just twist it a little bit. And yeah, the, I never had seen anything where it was like software based time travel that specifically. So I thought, you know, if you, you're doing it that way, there's a chance that, you know, you, you enter the code wrong and we explain in one scene that Madeline has a, a looping code. So if something gets stuck, then it'll just keep cycling through the code until she uh, returns. And it was a mistake. So for an hour, the code was looping, which created all these Madelines in like a pocket dimension because the future doesn't exist yet in our time. So it's created a future. That's where all these Madelines are dumped. And then they all know based on the, the software that they have to come back to that exact time. Right. And it happens on a daily basis. Interesting. Okay. See, and that was, that was one place. Cause I was wondering where she, where she ends up. I'm like, where is she? Where is this? Uh, and, and that's, 
that's interesting that you're you're working from a time uh, from the assumption that the future the future doesn't exist yet, so you've got to have some place to go. That's uh, that's that's rather clever. Now, did when you when you first talked to Bria about this, did she get it right away uh, as far as what was happening in this thing, or did did she have to kind of come up to speed and read it one or two times? Uh, she no, she got it right away. Um, she it, she was actually so excited about it that she wrote the first draft of the script like over a weekend uh, because she was like in you know. I don't consider myself inspiring, but she was inspired by the script to uh, do a draft <laughs> of our script. And then uh, from that point, we, you know, fine tuned the, the logic things. And her mom is a uh, scientist. So that helped too with all like the technical stuff, um, because, you know, we don't know when someone does a trial in a lab, there's certain protocols. And uh, yeah, her mom definitely helped us do it the right way. I think it's interesting, too, that you've got them uh, putting their lab together in the in the garage, basically. And I, I look at it and it wasn't it didn't it wasn't enough to take me out of the movie. But when they first, you know, they did their first test with the orange, I thought, how much power is that pulling off of the grid? <laughs> is, it, is that going to be noticed? Is anybody going to come asking about that? It's kind of it's just one of those random thoughts, uh, but it, but it was it wasn't it wasn't done in a way that you know like I said it didn't take me out. It was everything in the way it's all presented holds together pretty well. The internal logic and the consistency are there, so I was I was I enjoyed it. I thought it was a I thought it was a fun movie. Thank well, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we. I feel like Bria and I spent a lot of time um, trying to convince each other that, like, trying to talk plot holes, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So she focused a lot on character development and um, the relationship between Owen and Madeline when she was writing. And I kind of was the the world builder. So I was trying to come up with, you know, um, the logic points. And then we would kind of bounce it off each other. Does this make sense? Does this work? Does this, you know could someone uh, argue against this? Um, And, you know, in the end it's a sci-fi movie. So people are going to have, you know, all kinds of theories and thoughts anyway. Right. Which is fine. I think that's the, this is supposed to be a fun movie. It's not like a, not trying to, you know, change the world with it. It's just a fun sci-fi movie. Wait, 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 Jason, you're, you're making a movie that doesn't have a message in the middle of it. That's, that's, that's out of, that's out of the norm for, for Hollywood these days, right? Uh, You you mentioned, you mentioned (laughs) Owen, you've got Perry Shen playing Owen. He's, uh, for those of you who are familiar with soap operas, he plays Brad on General Hospital. And you've also got Richard Riley, who's a fairly recognizable character actor. You probably would recognize him without even knowing who he is. I mentioned the name. You're probably not even going to say, who is that? But then, you know, you see his face, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy in just about everything. What was the process, Ed, I guess you can speak to this, what was the process for casting this thing? Because Bria, of course, is already on board. How'd you find everybody else? I think this is more of a Jason question, because Parry and Richard, Jason, you had worked with them on the Hatchet movies? Yeah. Um, this is pretty funny, actually. And I don't think I've ever told Perry this, but when Bria and I were uh, thinking about who Owen could be, she said Perry right away. And I said, no way. I'm not working with Perry on another movie. Because in my head, I had this literal, I have this thing where I hate when directors work with the same actors over and over again. And um, it was just at that time, that's how I felt. Obviously, I changed that. Uh, I, I'm I love Perry and he's perfect for this. Um, but at that time I was just like, Perry was in my last movies and you know, all the hatchet movies. I work with them all the time. He's like my friend. I feel like I'm just like putting myself in a box by only working with, you know, one actor. Um, but that's, that's dumb, you know? Uh, and Bria was like, well, I have a crush on Perry, so I want to work with him. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess, you know, chemistry wise that's good sure. so uh yeah so that's how that came together and uh obviously perry you know is a great actor and it, i knew he could do it from the start um the uh the with richard um i've known richard from hatchet he's like 
the nicest person in the entire world. You won't meet a nicer person, a more humble actor. And um, I just randomly called him and I was like, would you like to be in this movie? It's a very small movie and I would love to have you for a few days. And he said, yeah, no problem. If, uh, you know, if my schedule allows it, I'll do it. And, uh, and he worked it out and he showed up and he's just like, I brought my own clothes. Where should I change? <laughs> he, he's just like the nicest person to work with ever. Now with, and that's uh, why he's in everything because everyone wants to work with him. Yeah, well, I can I can imagine. Well, you know, you get those reliable character actors that you can populate your cast with. You know, they're going to be people that you can depend on. You can count on them. They're they're never going to let you down because they've proven themselves at this point. Now with with Perry and his performance, I think one of the things that I noticed with all of this, his character pretty much grounds the story emotionally for me when i'm when i'm watching this and i'm watching his arc from we're really excited about this this is really a cool thing to oh my god oh my god oh my god disaster disaster what what just went wrong to the the feeling of maybe not necessarily despair but this this how are we going to fix this you know, just just to watch that emotional arc it play out in his character, I thought was interesting because it it juxta you juxtapose that against Madeline, the various different versions of Madeline getting more manic and and changing in personality, and you get these different versions of her. You know, Bria's all over the place with the various different types of Madeline that she's got to portray emotionally, whereas Perry has pretty much a solid emotional arc all the way through that I think kind of grounds that for the audience watching this. I, if I was in his position, I would probably be horrified at the implications of what it is that we have to do in order to save the universe. And you can see that play out. I mean, it takes a little bit, but he's just like, we're way over our heads on this. Yeah. So, before we shot, I, I talked to Perry, you know, a lot about this character. And I was like, um, the number, when we start out in the film, and the good thing about this is we shot almost all chronologically. So it kind of, it helped him be able to develop his, uh, you know, his arc. And um, I said, at the beginning, you're a scientist. That's all you're thinking in your head is the logical way to do things. And you can tell that from the beginning of the movie when, you know, Bria's like, you know, if I die and another Bria, another Madeline shows up, is she me? And he's like, yeah, it's the same person. Um, and then you slowly see him change his, his, the way he thinks about things and realizes really quickly when he has to start uh, killing Madeline's that it's a lot harder than just the logical way of how you would handle the situation. And I think he did an amazing job at, uh, yeah, just weaving that arc throughout. Now, this movie is out on April 1st, but have, have you hit the film festival circuit with it? Or where, where has this played so far, or has it? Yeah, we did a like a mini film festival run because we kind of right at the beginning, uh, Ed was able to do a deal with uh, Gravitas Ventures, who is distributing in America. And um, so we, we didn't have time to do a big festival run, but we did uh, a few sci-fi festivals. Uh, we went, we played in Austin and in Boston. And um, I went to both screenings and uh, it was, the Q and A's were really fun because uh, like we were saying, it's like a bunch of sci-fi nerds that want to, uh, and I say that in a loving way, cause I am one too, uh, that want to like figure out the logic of it. You know, that's kind of how people look at things. They want to like, how would this work for real? Yeah. So the, the Q&A questions were interesting. All right. Well, speaking of Q&A, let's, let's do this real quick. We're going to take a very quick break. Ed, when we get back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about making that deal with Gravitas and what was involved with that. And then uh, we may take some questions from the chat. So everybody stand by. We will be right back after this. Live from the bunker, it's Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Hi everyone, Jason Hunt here inviting you to join us every Saturday for news, science fiction, fantasy, and horror headlines from the week, plus interviews, 
Updates on events going on around the world and the weather forecast for same. It's all wrapped up in one neat package for your weekend. We call it Good Morning Multiverse. Every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central, right here on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here, along with my guests, Jason Miller and Ed Doherty, two of the men responsible for the movie Madelines, starring Bria Grant, Perry Shen, a time travel movie with a little bit of a twist. Ed, as the producer, let me let me ask you because uh, Jason mentioned you getting the deal with Gravitas for the uh, for the distribution here. How much? How much? goes into making a deal like that what what's involved for those for those people who have never been into that part of the business because you know you go to the movies distributors either universal or or you know sony or whatnot some of these smaller films the 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 smaller budget indie films find distribution other ways so what was the process in in reaching out and connecting with gravitas uh, I had done a movie with them back in 2014 called Scrapper. And I've done a lot of small scale movies like this. And Gravitas, they are like very honest and update you regularly with what's happening. And a lot of other companies on this scale are, I guess I would say, borderline criminals. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, let's let's try to get Gravitas interested in this because I know there are people that we can trust and that are very transparent about the whole process. And uh, so I, I, I have a lot of good uh, feelings for them. So did it take a lot of time to convince them or did you, were you just, hey, I've got this thing, take a look, and then the deal was done, shake the hands and, and, and sign the contract? They had said they were like, whatever the things we're always looking for is small scale, smart sci-fi, which a lot of people don't do low budget sci-fi as much as, you know, low budget horror, for instance. Um, so it was a pretty quick thing to get them interested in this. Yeah. Now, do they, they, they concentrate just on sci-fi at this point? Or are they looking for other things? Because I got a romantic comedy this one. I've been sitting still for about 10 years. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they do all kinds of genres. Yeah. I mean, they release a lot of movies, but they still give each movie kind of a, a good amount of attention. So, Jason, when you guys got the distribution deal, how did that? I mean, that's a that's a weight off your shoulders, right? Now people can see this, and 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 you know, all of this work kind of pays off at the end, right? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely um, the hardest part uh, for me is waiting to see if you, you know what who your distributor is going to be and uh, what the deal is going to be. And uh, Ed did a great job by you know showing. Madeline's to Gravitas and getting them on board. Um, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of the smaller companies that are criminal like. And, uh, and so, yeah, when Ed told me of Gra about Gravitas and how they, you know, how they run their company and how they're very transparent with their, you know, the money that comes in from the movie. Um, that's what kind of got me on board because usually what happens is, they give you this big pitch about how they're going to do all this stuff. And, you know, they, they do every, you know, all these different things for every filmmaker. And then once you deliver the film to them and all your stuff on your end is done, it's like crickets. And you're like, uh, so my, my, actually my last film, I didn't even know it was coming out until, uh, it was already listed on Amazon. And, oh, wow. you know, and then I start, you know, emailing and texting, I'm like, what's going on? So uh, that's kind of what you're usually dealing with with distributors on this level. Um, so yeah, Gravitas has been great so far. We got a, a question in the chat. Uh, did uh, did Gravitas have any notes on the script or the rough cut? At what point did Gravitas become involved in this? Was the movie done, or did they did they have any involvement in the creative process along the way? Uh, no, the movie was done. Basically, I don't think. Do we change anything at that point, Jason? No, the only thing they worked with us on was the trailer and the poster. Um, but yeah, they they had no notes on the film. They you know 
they thought it was great. And I think on this level, you don't really, if you're coming in as a distributor after the fact, you don't really usually give notes to change anything when it's already finished, the movie. So, Jason, you and Bria write the script. You've directed it. It's all put together. Ed, you're you're handling the logistics as a producer. Did any did, did any of you ever have, you know, because Hollywood is full of those creative differences conversations, right? Did 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 any of you ever have these these moments where one of you thought it should go one way and somebody thought it should go the other way and and now who's going to pull rank? Or was it a fairly easy production? I don't really remember anything. Do you, Ed? No, I think it was fairly easy. I remember I had a few logistical questions. I just remember that one night where everyone was so tired and I was like, but wait, why is this? And you were like, I can't even think. I've got to go home. And I was like, wait, but... <laughs> I, yeah, that's the only issue when you're... Uh, if if a question arises about the script on set, it's it's very difficult to try to like rationally like figure it out when you're in the middle of making something, right? Um, because you have so many things in your head, and you're like, I can't really think about you know this right now. Um, that may have only happen once, and it was probably Ed was probably bringing up something that we just overlooked, and then you know, I think I remember this now, and I think we we ended up uh, incorporating your note to uh, to help the scene work better. Yeah. Ed, Ed looks like you're kind of, you're kind of <laughs> thinking about something to shoot. Oh, I'm trying to remember, I was trying to remember exactly the, 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 the moment, but then, then I was just thinking about the kind of exhaustion you have at the end of a shoot day, which I kind of love. I yeah. miss that right now. It's kind of like at the end of like a half marathon. How many days did it take <laughs> to shoot this? Uh, was it 18 days or I'm less? Sure. I feel like movies, it's so much harder these days because everything kind of does a long series of pickups. You know, like even yeah. Marvel movies do reshoots, but even movies on this level, like Jason, I feel like you were like having to get a shot of someone's hand like every once in a while or like <laughs> weird things like that. We definitely, we shot, I think maybe 16 days at first. Then we did that, was it one or two days in the desert? Remember that desert by the shooting range? Yep. Uh, I don't think that was a shooting range. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was just people shooting in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, but so uh, I think what happens when you're you're moving this fast in a low-budget way is um, there's some things in the script. So I was editing while we were shooting, and uh, I noticed some little holes that we needed to fill. And so, yeah, we did a few extra reshoots and um, pickups that, definitely helped in the end and made it you know feel it's good to be able to like you see the whole picture and then you're like oh it'd be cool if we had this and then you just go and shoot it because you don't need to get you know permission from a big studio to do it right i i know one of the things that uh when you compare indie filmmaking or or even studio filmmaking out in california with say like middle middle of the country here in kansas city we don't have uh, a requirement for permits to go and shoot things. I mean, if we're going to shoot on location, we get permission from wherever that place is, and we just go and we do it. We don't have to, to you know, file all of this paperwork. With the, with the logistics of something like this, I'm, I'm assuming you shot it in California. Was the paperwork uh, rather onerous at that, at, at that level? Because, you know, small budget, small crew, little footprint, you know. I mean, it probably should have been more onerous. I don't think we did anything. <laughs> but normally it is very different here than it is other places. I made I made movies in Seattle and you would go to like a pizza place and say like, hey, can I shoot here? And they'd be like, you're going to shoot a movie in my pizza place. How much do I pay you? And then you come in L.A. and they have a whole like form already for you to fill out. And they're like, it's two thousand dollars an hour to shoot at our pizza place. And right. Like, what? And you have the people that are that are ready for for the hundred dollar handouts to not mow their lawns or or get the leaf blowers out or anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's also how we like Bria and I kind of designed the script so that it was contained. We we could be on one person's property, which um, you know I guess technically you're supposed to have a permit for, but you know because our crew was so small, mm-hmm. we could get away with the documentary style filmmaking, which. Um, has more leeway in terms of uh you know permits and stuff 
So uh, that was always in my head. Just keep the crew as small as possible. And um, it's funny, the the place that I didn't think we would get uh, kicked out of was the desert. And the first place we went to, we got kicked out right away. And I was like, this is the desert. There's nothing here. Um, but someone oh, yeah. pulled up and said, you can't, you can't shoot here. Huh. Um, so we just went down the street. <laughs> Well, and I gotta, I gotta give props to Ken Whiting. I mean, the cinematography on this thing is is really impressive, given the 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 confined spaces, and and you've only got a certain amount of, of room to work in. Uh, it it remind I'm like, okay, where are the lights in this shot? You know, where where is the because the camera camera can can be various different places, but if you're in a fixed location. You don't have walls that you can fly in and out and move things around. You've got to work in the space that you've got right there in front of you. So I got to say, yeah, Ken, Ken did a, a really nice job in, in lighting and shooting this. Where'd you yeah, find him? You were, um, so Ken was a gaffer on a few movies that I produced and uh, he was always the one saving the day on those movies because <laughs> he had his crew they were really tight and he could just you know if the cinematographer needed a change it was real quick and that's kind of what sold me on him because he he told me that he wanted to start uh uh dping so um i think this was his first feature that he dp'd and um there was a lot of pressure on him because he not only had to dp but he also had to be the gaffer um and uh yeah if you were on set in that laboratory set it was a very tiny room in Ed's office uh, in his, the house that he was renting for his office. And I feel like it looks at least double the size of what it was, if not bigger. Yeah. Um, but it was so cramped and tight in there. And um, yeah, you, you would be, you would, if you were trying to light it yourself, you would be like, where do I put it? The, the run and gun style, kind of like what you're talking about, documentary style of shooting doesn't generally allow for a whole lot of time for setups. And I remember I worked with a I worked with a director of photography one time. His name was Jim Sullivan, and he uh, he would spend a good amount of time to get all of the setups so that you know the lighting was such that all he had to do is whenever you change the camera, all he, you just have to tweak one light or move something this way. He he'd set up for all of the setups. And he tells the story that one time he, he had a director that was really, really irritated with him. And he, and he turned around and he says, we either do it right or we do it over. I'd prefer to do it right. And so he starts, you know, and he does his setup and, and you light it once and then you're shooting the whole day in there and you don't have to do a whole lot. What was Ken's approach to, to shooting inside? Because there are several camera setups in these rooms so you got a light for all of the different directions that the camera is pointed. Yeah, it was a very similar technique where he pre-lit everything for the entire day, or at least for that side of the shoot. So, you know, how you shoot out one side and then you move to the other side and you, you light it for that side. Um, but because, you know, especially the lab is that small, it was kind of like a one light with like a little, you know, key light over here. And... Um, Usually, you know, as a director, sometimes you forget to get something and you're like, oh, I wish we could get this from this angle. And a lot of times the DP is like, well, you know, that's going to take a long time and we can't really afford to do that. Uh, Ken always was like, he would like to pause for a second and be like, okay, I, I can just move. I can do it. And he would like figure out a way to do it as fast as possible, which really helped us um, get as many setups as we did all the time. Yeah. All right, question in the chat. What was the average number of crew on set? How many people were, were were milling about when you were in production? Very small. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to guess 13, uh, 12. Is that, do you think that's right? I think so. And that's only because we had makeup effects. So mm -hmm. like if we did not have makeup effects, I feel like it would be like eight people on an average, but every day we had makeup effects. So we, we had an extra, you know, little crew of makeup artists. Now, did you guys shoot during lockdown? Did you have any kind of, of pandemic logistics that you had to deal with? 
we didn't shoot during lockdown, but most of post happened during lockdown, right. which uh, was basically just me finishing the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we didn't run into any issues on set, but it was more like um, I had to mix it, mix the movie from like, you know, looking at links that my uh, Lisa Fowl, our sound designer would send me instead of being in her studio with her while she does it. You know, yeah. that was a little frustrating because, uh, you know, her sound system is a lot better than mine. So um, I kind of had to like put faith in her. But um, yeah, that's that's the only thing I would say was like kind of an annoyance for me. I can appreciate that. I had a when when I did mine, I had a, a, a buddy of mine who did a 5.1 mix and going into the studio where the mix is happening is a whole lot different than listening to it on your computer at home. And, you know, you, you have just a couple of little piddly speakers as opposed to this system where you can actually hear it. So I can imagine it was a little bit of a challenge. When, when yeah, you it got was a it, challenge. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that when the final day that she delivered, like, our uh, final stems, which are all the, you know, the separate audio tracks for right. everything, I went to her uh, studio and because it was – kind of after the big lockdown and um she played some scenes from for the movie blasting in her you know she has like a crazy dolby surround system and um i was like wow this is a completely different movie than i've been watching for so long um so i was yeah i was like more impressed after that with her and music by matt akers uh and and it's not I don't recall just off the top of my head any particular, you know, right out of the gate in your face theme song, but the music feels like it's it it blends in very well and and it supports the emotions of the of the scenes as they play out. Is Matt somebody that you'd worked with before as well? Ed found Matt actually. Okay. Yeah, I, I uh so for my podcast, we wanted to get the um do you know the movie Blood Rage, famous Thanksgiving slasher? I love that film. But the theme from that movie is so great. And we found, my partner was like, oh, I found this guy on YouTube who covers it. And we contacted Matt and then became friendly with Matt. And Matt is like the best composer. Like, I'm just a fan of him. When you were like, music by Matt Akers. I was like, oh man, they got Matt Akers? I was like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. <laughs> he really, I feel like he ties everything together. Yeah, he's, um, I've never worked with a composer on the level that I worked with Matt. Um, and I think part of that is because Matt doesn't do a lot of features. So he he kind of was looking for me to tell him, uh, he almost wasn't sure where, how much music to put in. So we kind of worked very closely together to figure out where, um, you know, where the music could come in and go. And um and it was such a rewarding experience for me because I'm usually not like that with a composer. I just kind of let them do their thing. And then, uh, and then, you know, I, I take whatever the final thing is, but, um, but he was like very gun ho about, um, you know, playing me something and he'd say, does this work? And if you need me to hit this beat right here, I'll do it. And uh, I, I mean, the soundtrack is so good for this film um, and it's all on him. It's all like from his uh, creative genius. Uh, I think, you know, the, having a synth score was my idea, but having Matt was Ed's idea. And then Matt having the idea for the score was his idea. And it was like, it kind of all worked out so well. Now, are there plans to release a soundtrack album of some sort? Have y'all talked about doing that? We've discussed it. We're... Uh... In the works, as they say. (laughs) Because I know with with some of this stuff, I mean, the marketing of a film, yeah, Gravitas is going to do a little, uh, you know, is going to do their part. And, you know, like you said, you haven't hit too many of the film festivals. Now you've got distribution, you're going out on digital, and I assume DVD, probably Blu-ray maybe. At this point now, you're you're now doing all of the marketing for this thing. You're 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 the ones that are out front doing the PR and doing the interviews and doing all of that. Are you are you coming up with any particular challenges along that route because it's a smaller film, it's a it's a it's a I mean 
at the risk of of sounding like it's less than you know, it's a low budget indie movie and and that carries with it a certain level of expectation that may not necessarily match what you're delivering cuz cuz this is actually this is a really solid film and and now are you know you've got to kick in doors to say hey let's talk about this movie this is a really this is a really good movie and i haven't seen too many reviews out there yet how how much of a challenge is it to get the word out uh it's a huge challenge um <laughs> basically on this level when you're you know you don't have a, a a huge name you know to put in front um you don't have a studio that's giving you a big marketing budget um it's and i don't have a huge following already so it's like it is difficult every step of the way in marketing the movie um what we did do, and I suggest anyone that has a, a lower budget film, um, you should you should get a PR person at the beginning before you film so that they can help you get into the festivals that you want. And at the end, when you're at the distribution, um, you should also hire your own PR person. And um, that's what we have now, this really wonderful lady, Kim Dixon, and she uh, pitches us to everyone. So she sends out, you know, the trailer, the poster, uh, this package that will, you know, try to sell every every interviewer and every, you know, news site out there. And it's just a different market right now. I mean, there's a there's a movie released, you know, multiple movies released every week, whereas like, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. So um, it just it, it's exponentially harder now to to get any press. Yeah. And um you just have to kind of deal with it. You got to kind of figure out a way to, to get the, the film out there as best you can. Are there plans uh, for you guys to hit any of the comic cons and, and try to get the word out that way as well? I mean, the film festivals are one Avenue, but now that uh, conventions and comic cons are, are opening back up and, you know, we've got on location in person, you know, events that are, that are coming back. Are there any plans to, to make those visits? I think because of the window that we're in, it, there wasn't anything happening specifically. Um, but Perry Shen was just at um, a horror convention in Chicago, I think last week. And um, so he was in pitch mode. He was giving out, uh, you know, uh, postcards and posters and you know telling everyone to to order it on apple um which definitely helps a lot it's like a grassroots way of doing it so um yeah i think as far as conventions the actors will help us with that a lot ed is this does this involve a lot of thinking outside the box for something like this when it comes to the marketing of of a project of this size and and scope uh, I, I, I mean, always, and I think, you know, also aggressively within the box. I mean, I think the soundtrack thing you mentioned is a great way that people have been promoting movies recently and kind of indie movies on this scale. They'll do the soundtrack and it'll have like a cool kind of Mondo poster-esque cover. And it kind of just, whenever I see a soundtrack for a movie, I'm like, wow, this is a real movie. They got a soundtrack. <laughs> um, so I do wish we had gotten Matt's soundtrack out like right now, basically, um, which probably would have been a great, great thing but let's not get wrapped up in regrets right now. <laughs> well, I mean, until the heat death of the universe, there's still a chance you get it out, right? I mean, oh, yeah, you, know, for you sure. can always get that out. Now, Dave, Dave said, said uh, saw uh, Perry at Horror Hound uh, convention, so I guess that's, that's where you're talking about. Well, did he sell them on the movie? <laughs> I don't know. Dave, he did. Dave, Dave put in the chat whether or not you're interested in this film. I think I I I can <laughs> recommend it. Um, you know, I I've, I've got a couple of quibbles, but you know, I'll I'll put that in my review, but nothing that nothing that takes me out, nothing that diminishes the enjoyment of it. Um, Dave says yes, he did. So, Dave, Dave there's Sweet. there's one that's going to watch it. So, <laughs> where is this going to be available? You mentioned Apple. Where else can people find this when it comes out? Uh, it'll be like on all the VOD, all the streaming uh, platforms where you rent or pay for a uh, movie. And I guess that's the good thing about if we release the the soundtrack later on, it's streaming. So, you know, everyone always has the chance to you know scoop it up after they you know find out about it right 
and we do have a link to the trailer in our notes as well as the uh, the Twitter accounts for the two of you. What else have you got in the works? What's coming up next? Um, well, I uh, am, you know, my business is VFX. So I, uh, last year I worked on a film called Jujitsu with uh, Nicolas Cage and um, it was on Netflix. It was like one of the top Netflix movies the week it was released. And so I uh, just read the script for the sequel and I'm excited to, to get on board that. And then as far as like writing, directing, I think, um, you know, the script that Bree and I were working on right before we made this, I think we're going to try to, uh, you know, go back to that and uh, see if we can find someone that'll work with us um, on a different level. Ed, what's next for you? Uh, I've been working on a TV project for three years. Um, it, a series in development, a, a limited series that's kind of a uh, true crime meets horror. It's hard to describe without saying what it is, but um, we're going to see what happens next month after these three years of uh, studio development is when it finally goes to the next stage. So we'll see. So either I'll be a happy person or I will have to be uh, <laughs> institutionalized. Now, are there particular types of stories that you guys really, really, really want to tell that maybe you haven't had a chance to yet? For whatever reason, I mean, you know, resources being available, Hollywood culture being what it is, you know, knowing the right people, whatever, whatever the reasons are. Are there particular stories that you guys just have a burn to tell that you haven't been able to yet? Yeah, I mean, I would say it, it's, you know, when I moved out to L.A., my goal, I was, you know, I had pie in the sky dreams, right? Right. Uh, like everyone. And my, I really wanted to make a live action Akira movie because that was the best movie <laughs> I've ever seen. And I wanted to see it live action. And, uh, you know, and when you're a kid, you're you're not thinking like, oh, they don't give that to someone that hasn't made anything, obviously. Um, so that was always my my goal was always to direct sci-fi in one way or another. And um, I kind of, you know, I got put into a little bit of a box with horror because those were the movies that I was producing and I love horror movies, but I think as a genre that I'm like passionate about, it's sci-fi. So like, I definitely have my big sci-fi ideas, but I have to wait until someone's asking me to, you know, present them. Yeah. And so that's a little bit frustrating, but you know, it's just the way it works. Ed, what about you? Anything that just you've got a you've got a burn to to put it out there and make it? I mean the 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 TV thing I've been working on these past three years is really what I am burning to do. Like I've thought to myself, if we get that made, and then I got hit by a truck, that's fine. <laughs> um, and it's kind of like a, a my favorite genre, which is probably getting pretty trendy now, but is like a darkly comedic take on a true story you know, and the tone uh, reveals kind of the absurdity of things. I, but I feel like Pam and Tommy winning time. Th that's probably one of the biggest trends in TV right now. Um, but that is my favorite genre. I got to say. As a producer, are you seeing that the streaming and, and the, the digital home video type of channels are, are having an impact on, both what kind of movies are being made, what kind of stories are being told, and what kind of audience they're reaching? Yes. I mean, I would say right now, like I think I saw a stat that $153 billion were spent on content last year, or, or was it going to be this year? Whatever it is, tons of money is being spent. Um, but it is very trend driven. So like in TV, the thing I just described, I feel like that's the biggest trend. Um, and then I feel kind of a, a few secondary trends um, are out there. But I feel like when you're trying to exist outside of that, it becomes very difficult. Um, even if what you're trying to do is something that is, you know, commercial to anyone, you know, right. like anyway. For the smaller pictures, does that make it more of a challenge to get any kind of a theatrical release? Are, are we at a point where we're just like, well, let's just go direct, direct the video, direct the digital, and and bypass theatrical altogether? Yeah, I, I think so for sure. Um, with, with a smaller movie also, I feel like 
a theatrical release is a good way to just lose any kind of money you could possibly make because it's a great way for the distributor to be like, we spent a million dollars putting it in four theaters, you know. Uh, but um, theatrical at this point for us, anything under like a $20 million movie, I don't really see, you know, the point. But I've always I've always loved theaters. I've always been like, that's my favorite thing to do. But also movies on a smaller scale, I kind of think, why bother? Yeah. So that is, being said, Madeline's is in movies theaters. <laughs> yeah, that's, true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Right. Um, we actually, you know, I'll give you some inside baseball. So what happens is you get a better position on the VODs screens if you are day and date release, which means you're in a theater and on VOD at the same time. Okay. Um, so it's a way for uh, marketing to get up a little higher. Um, so we are screening Madeline's in um, Detroit, in Minneapolis, and in Chicago um, this weekend. So if you're in any of those places, try to find a theater with it. Now, are there any plans to put it in, in theaters anywhere else? Or is this just, we're going to do this one time just to help with the, with the algorithms and, and be done with it? Yeah, it's more of a one-time thing. I'm sure in L.A. there are always chances for, you know, screenings i was just at my my friend adam rifkin who's a director and writer um he did detroit rock city um he just did a, a special screening of a. <laughs> he basically took all the airport movies i don't know if you've ever seen them hmm. and combined them into one crazy like satire of comedy and um and he got a theater to show it <laughs> It, it was free. So anyone that's the, how you get around, you know, licensing. But right. um, yeah, in L.A. especially, there's a lot of places where you can just, you know, uh, you have the opportunity to show your movie uh, more than the first release of it. Are there plans for a sequel? I don't think this film needs a sequel. I think I, I think we told the story the way it is. Yeah. Um, and I it kind of is the end is set up so it could be but it's more of the end is more of like um you know you know everything about time travel and then it's not what you thought through the whole thing so that's kind of it's set up like a sequel but it's not really it's more like uh it's just different at the end it's just change it's just not the way you thought it was either yeah that's actually kind of refreshing to hear because you know everybody is looking for that next franchise right you know the next billion dollar 12 12 movies in the series type of thing so you know doing doing the one and done is almost a lost art at this point it's good to it's good to hear that uh there are some people out there who still appreciate that so yeah the, i don't know what you could you could do in a sequel at uh you know twenty thousand more madeline's right <laughs> right right all right so on uh social media jason is there on twitter ed is also there on twitter where can people find out more about the movie itself the 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 trailer is on vimeo uh where else can people find more about the the movie and about youtube um well i'm on instagram too at rockweiler and um that's where we're posting, you know, everything we can about the film and Bria Grant is posting as well. Um, I would say my only thing is if you have the ability, please uh, order the movie this week. It's on sale actually for six ninety nine on Apple. Um, so it's a, like a special pricing before it actually releases and next week it'll go up. Um, so if you pre-order it this week, it helps us out tremendously in the fact that more people will be able to see it uh, show up in their stream for Apple. Um, so Apple is the place to go to look for it. All right. The number of pre-orders it takes to boost it is very small. So Yeah. All right. The movie is called Madeline's, starring Bria Grant, Perry Shen, and uh, Jason, Ed, I want to thank you for being here. Jason Miller, Ed Doherty, thanks very much thank for you. spending the time to talk to us about it. We will post links again to all of this, and and, and we have links to uh, your socials in our in our show notes. Good luck with everything. Hope it does well. I will uh, be putting a, a review out here soonish, and uh, we'll do. But I did enjoy it. I do recommend it, and uh, look forward to seeing what you guys put out next. Great. Thank thanks so much, much for having us. All right, and thanks all of you in the chat for being here, and thanks to everybody. Uh, if you are here not with us live, you're still able to leave a comment, send us your feedback live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. 
Tomorrow on the program, Naomi Augustine will be here talking about her new collection of short stories, Mixed Realities. And then on Thursday, we'll be talking Superman and Lois. And uh, don't forget, on Saturday, we have our wrap-up of the news headlines on Good Morning Multiverse at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central. So join us for that. And, of course, if you want to support us, connect with us, we're on 10 different social media platforms, four different video platforms. You can sign up for our newsletter over at scififorme.com or in the notes here. And, of course, if you want to support us financially, there's a couple of ways you could do that with the PayPal tip jar and the subscribe star. But you are under no obligation, of course. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for being here, folks. And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.